but a beautiful, as Janelle um, described it, a beautiful autumnal morning, even though it's still uh, still technically summer. That definitely is beginning to feel it, right? Which means we have Indian summer coming, which means more heat, right, Jim? Okay. Yeah. No, I was expecting <laughs> Don't rush it. <laughs> I figured I'd get a comment from the from the back row back there. Native Americans. I'm sorry. Native Americans. Yeah, Native Americans. Sorry. Thank you for correcting me there, Tom. Oh my goodness. Redeeming Grace Baptist Church has officially become politically correct. <laughs> we are in Acts chapter two this morning. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us. As we open your word this morning and uh, bring chapter 2 to a conclusion, I pray that you will help us to recognize this uh, most uh, important of conclusions of these first two chapters. And I pray that you will help us to understand the, uh, the fleshed out nature of the first two chapters found in 42 to 47. So open our eyes, help us to see, help us to respond in rejoicing and love and, and glorying in you. In your name I pray. Amen. So we come to the end of chapter 2. We're looking at verses 42 to 47 this week. If you missed any of the messages from chapter 1 and 2, I'd encourage you to get online and listen to them. Are they all online as far as you know? Uh, last week's is not yet. But last week's is not, but it should be on soon. Yeah. And uh, then you can listen to any of the ones you missed. I think it's important just because uh, really Acts chapter 3 through chapter 28, the end of the book, really hinges upon uh, chapters 1 and 2. As a matter of fact, I would argue that chapter 3 to the end of the book and therefore ongoing into the current day and beyond until Christ returns really is an interaction with, appropriately so, chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Acts. Um, because Acts 1 and 2 is the chapters that create that transition from Christ's earthly ministry to the Holy Spirit's ministry that is still ongoing to this day. And so it's really important that we see and understand chapters 1 and 2 for all the foundational presentation. Well, we find that today's text is interesting because for the first time in the book of Acts, we move from pre-Holy Spirit coming, the actual process of the Holy Spirit coming, and the first message of Holy Spirit indwelt believers. Does that make sense? So we move from that into the first text that I would say is given to us as what it should and and would look like and did look like when the Holy Spirit was in people and in the church. Now, I would argue that what we'll see in chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, as well as chapter 3, and ongoing to the end of the book and beyond, of course, in the epistles, um, is... I would argue, some people would reject this, but I would argue that generally speaking, what we see in chapter 2 should be what should be normative for the church. I would present that what we find in chapter 2 understood correctly should be expected in the church. That is the church of believers, of true spirit indwelt believers. Some argue, just to give a complete package, some argue that what we see at the end of chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, uh, is what we're referencing, is just a description of the first step of the church. And many people would argue that in a very real way, that is just primitive church, 
and now we are much more in what would I'm not trying to be derogatory on this, but we're more into the more refined church that has the rest of the New Testament, um, the New Testament um, um, teaching, inspired teaching applied to it as well. So therefore, the church they would look necessarily different from that. And I think that that is, is an error because I think what we have to realize is that as the church has, if I use the term, matured, even biblically, if you follow the, and trace the history of the church in the New Testament, do you find a refining of the church or do you find a typical declination of the church? What do you think? Usually. It's usually going downhill, isn't it, in the church? As a matter of fact, it starts right away in chapter. In, 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 you see it starting in chapter five of, of the book of Acts. Early on, even you start to see the declining of the purity of the church. You have Ananias and Sapphira. Sapphira, and then after that, you have Acts chapter six, where they need deacons. And why do they need deacons? Because there's a big war going on in the church. There's a war between the Hellenized Jews and the natural Jews. As they are warring with each other, and you find this repeatedly, and then you finally get into into the gospel. I'm sorry, into the epistles, and every literally every single epistle that that Paul and James and John and Peter write are all dealing with what every single time. Either error in theology, well, it's always error in theology, or it's and usually it's error in theology that has caused error in. Action, living, you see a church in disarray. And then you finally get to the book of, and of course, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, it's very clear there. It's, it's like all sorts of things going on. Jude, what a mess that is. And then you get to, Re to Revelation, and you get to the, fir the first uh, three chapters, or the first two chapters of, um, or first three chapters, sorry, of Revelation, and you find seven churches, and only one of them are doing well. A couple of them are doing, eh, well, in some areas, bad in other areas. And then there's like three churches that are just so far off the rails, they can't even find the rails. So my argument is when I look at, at Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, is that what we find in 242 47 is not merely a primitive church that, that can't find their way. <clears throat> we find a church that doesn't have baggage yet. We find a church, uh, yes, a primitive or basic church. We find a church that is enthralled, right? We find a church that is enthralled, enraptured with Jesus. They are a church that that they that drank deeply at the well of the world, didn't they? They are comprised, comprised of people who what? Who actually cried out, crucify him. They watched Jesus die on the cross. And then they are graciously converted, mercifully converted by the Spirit's work, using the means called Peter in his preaching and the other apostles. And the result was a group of people who early on are just captivated by this transition, by this transformation, this life, this Holy Spirit, this Jesus. 
Now, it's important when we look at 42 to 47, a couple of things. Number one, very important that we recognize there are no commands here in this text. That's really important. There's nothing legalistic going on here. Instead, what we find in Acts 2, 42 to 47 is we find a description. Pure and simple description. Luke is writing out a description of what they look like. If you could, you could, you could present it this way. He's drawing a painting, painting a painting. No prescription at all. This is just, it's just describing, it's painting it. It's showing it in its full color. What the church looked like. Now, granted, the church was full of sinners, correct? They're redeemed sinners, but they're sinners, but they are sinners. But they have the spirit. And when they have the spirit, something happens in their life. Something changes it dramatically. Again, shortly thereafter, we're going to start to see that that idea that is presented throughout the scriptures, and that is that God really always chose a faithful remnant, right? He only saves a faithful remnant. But there's a lot of other people who get involved in the church, don't they? But they get involved in the church, but they're really not the church, as I've described it in the past. We have the church, it's a small group, the faithful remnant, and then we have a greater group to call the crowd. Some in the crowd eventually become part of the faithful remnant, don't they? But oftentimes many don't. Many don't. If I, if I could just submit this to you, because in our in our Monday night Bible study, we're studying 1 John. That's what 1 John's all about. It's written to a church, saying to the church, this is, this is how you know if you're really saved or not. There's no assumption, as John writes to the early church, that the church, the people that are receiving this letter are believers. He's writing to them and saying, these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. And he spends five chapters explaining all of these things that he talks about. Because John's argument is that when someone is saved, there are ramifications of that. There are dramatic ramifications of that. Rusty would have sent me a text this week about this very thing. We've said it all along, haven't we? When we come in contact with Jesus, what? We come away changed. And that's basically what you said to me this week. We come away changed. We either hate him or we love him. But that loving him has, demonstrates itself. It shows itself. In Acts 2, 42-47, that's exactly what Luke is presenting in descriptive form. He's describing this is what the church looks like. And again, I think it is not referring to just this is what the primitive church looked like. This is what the true church looks like. The great picture, in fact, it's one of the best pictures in all the scriptures. Let's look at it. Starting in verse 42, the message is wrapped up, coming up to, 40, to verse 40, and then verse 41. So those who received his word, that is the word that Peter was proclaiming, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So they were saved, they're baptized, they become part of the church. Comes to verse 42. And they, referring to this new church, okay, they devoted, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day who were being saved, or those who were being saved. Again, before we start looking at the text itself, I want to remind us again that it is descriptive. Now we're going to clarify some things, what I think the text is referring to. It is descriptive. <laughs> it, is, it is written by Luke. I would present to you for the purpose of examination, evaluation. Where's my heart? What am I after? Not so that I say, well, I've got to be just like every little thing that is, is said here because, again, it's descriptive. The point is not about the actual things they did, but this the point that Luke's trying to present is this. He's saying that when the Spirit moves in someone and they are saved, something dramatic happens in their heart. Longings change. Desires change. Priorities change. Hopes change. <clears throat> plans change. Values change. Commitments change. You get the point when you listen to Acts 2, 42 to 47, everything changes. Don't you pick that up just in the, in the, in the basic reading of the text? Like, everything changed. And everything, by the way, that, that, that Luke presents here, it's both counterintuitive and countercultural, isn't it? Counterintuitive, countercultural. Now, if I can just throw one thing out, I'm going to become political for just a second. I'm, and I never get political. Not in messages. But I want to be political for one second because lately this passage has been abused by some of the more liberal Christians. And I want to clarify it. Oftentimes people lately have been looking at this text argue for socialism in a variety of ways. And I just want to say that there is, again, it is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. In other words, it's not being forced on the people. It's not being forced on the people. It's not being demanded on the people of the church. Does that make sense? This is spirit-driven from within. <coughs> Big difference. I'm done with the politics. I just want to throw that out there because I think it's really important. Again, I've read the news, I've read it on Facebook, I've read it in, in social media in a variety of ways repeatedly by people that are trying to argue that the church should be the leaders in this whole thing called socialism because of this. This is not government-driven. This is spirit-driven. Radical difference. Okay? Make sense? Done with politics. In so doing, I'm not saying pro-socialism, anti-socialism. I'm just saying this has nothing to do with socialism. So, Let's just walk our way through it. What we're going to do this morning is we're just going to wander through and we're just going to listen to the text. Because I want us to listen to the text more than Steve. So we just, all I want to do is be a facilitator this morning to help us understand what he's talking about. Notice verse 42. Luke says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. We're going to stop right there for a second. And just hear... What, what Luke is communicating in this description of the early church. They're saved. They just were saved. They were just captivated by the gospel, captured by the Holy Spirit. And they're added to the church. I want you to notice something, that in this adding to the church, the first thing we can notice, and you've got to recognize it, that even in the initial statement made that I just read, 
you know that these people are going to, let me ask you this question, you know they're either going to stand out in the, in the, in, in the midst of the world they're living in, or they're going to be unrecognized. Which one? You think they're going to stand out? You think it's going to stand out? Even just in the first phrase I, I listed, do you think it's going to stand out? Absolutely, they're going to stand out. There's no question. How do you know that? Because you notice verse 42, after they're added to the church, notice what it says, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to something. The idea of devoting yourself to something, lest we water it down too much, we need to be careful. They, what does the King James say on that one, Jim? Verse, beginning of verse 42. That's, that's it, right there. They continued steadfastly. Is the King James? Anybody else have a different translation than ESV or King James? Anybody have anything else? What's the Holman say over there in the back row? Says <laughs> they devoted themselves. Devoted themselves. Same term. Anybody else have a different translation? Okay. The idea is, if I may, steadfastly. What again? They they gave themselves over steadfastly. Is that what it says? They continued. Continued steadfastly. They devoted. It, the the picture is. They gave themselves away to it. They became absolutely immersed in the picture. Or to really skin it out, the idea is that it became something that ruled everything. What did? The apostles' teaching. Starting with Peter, who just taught, right? And then the rest of the apostles continued teaching until the, 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 the dispersal of the, the church early on after Acts chapter 5. They continued in, over a time frame, they, they immersed themselves. Uh, one of the commentators I read said it, it's almost like a baptism. They were immersed, absolutely immersed in something. <clears throat> what? What the apostles were teaching. What were the apostles teaching? They're teaching doctrine. Exactly, they're teaching. They're teaching about this is who Jesus Christ is. They were teaching these new converts. This is who the Father, God the Father, is. Now it'd be really easy to say, well, they should have known who God the Father is, right? They're good Jews, right? No, because Judaism would have, and, and historically, or in some ways, perverted an accurate understanding of who God the Father was. And certainly perverted it from the perspective of seeing the interplay between God the Father and God the Son, right? And then they had to introduce this whole God the Holy Spirit. So they're talking about the Trinity, doctrine. They're introducing and teaching these new converts the Trinity and the Trinitarian doctrines. <coughs> they were probably teaching them all sorts of other things as well. Now, I'm sure they didn't say, well, our systematics today is going to be, and, and here's our three points in a poem. No, they kind of taught the scriptures. But they taught the scriptures in, in doctrinal type of ways so that these new believers could think through who is Jesus, who is God the Father, who is the Son. What is salvation? What are the ramifications of salvation? What is our eternal destiny? And how do we know that? And all what is sin? Who is Satan? And all the rest of these things. 
for these young believers in this first church, as it were, what you find is you find a group of people who are being steeped in. Now, I use that term very specifically. If you like tea, you know what I'm talking about. They're being steeped in the doctrines of the scriptures. And if you're steeped in the doctrines of the scriptures and you're continuing in them steadfastly, if you're devoted to them, what's going to happen to you? You absolutely you're going to take on those characteristics. If you take if I play the steep part a little bit more, if you take just as an example, you, you have a cup of tea and it's steeped in the in the in the, in the tea bag, and you take a a a piece of white bread and dip it in there and leave it in there for a bit and say you leave it in for 10 minutes and are able to get it out without it coming to pieces. Just work with me on this one. Do you think it's still going to be white? It's not going to be, is it? Is it changed? Can you get it back to white? It's never going back to white, is it? It's done. It is now the color of the tea and it will remain the color of the tea. That's the picture he's presented. When it says they're devoting themselves to it, they're, they're, they're steeping themselves in it, as it were. They're saturating themselves. They're being stained irretrievably to it. So that, and the picture is, so that when they come out of it, and they're, well, they're never going to come out. They're going to stay there because they're devoting it continuously. They're going to drip what? That. You squeeze them and what comes out? The doctrines. Doesn't it? You probe them and what comes out of them? Doctrine. You ask them questions and what comes out of them? Doctrine. If, 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 if person A in the church and person B in the church have a conflict, guess what comes out? In wrestling with the, with the conflict. Doctrine. That's what we see of Stephen, right? With the conflict, he gets up and he speaks doctrine, doesn't he? He proclaims doctrine. In all the conflicts throughout the, 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 the New Testament epistles, what does Paul send to them? Doctrine. He sends to them theology. Now, he gives them practical helps as well, but it's after he gives them the doctrine, the theology, the truth. The declared doctrine or theology that they need to know because it's all theology. So my point is, this early church, they were what? If I may put it, they were lovers of doctrine, the truth, the apostles' teaching. They were enthralled and they went after it. Now again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. He's saying this is just what it, what, what it is. You see, here's one of the problems with our church today. I'm not talking just our church. All churches today it's been through the ages the first thing we want to do is we want to say when we talk about Christianity we want to start to say right off the bat well tell me what what I need to do tell me what I need to do what we should be saying is no stop stop it's not what I need to do it's what I need to know and the real troubling thing is not even it's what I need to know the real troubling thing is that the question that needs to be asked is why don't we that's the real issue, isn't it? Why don't we? Why don't we know? What is it about us that causes not to know doctrine? What is stopping us 
from from being irrevocably transformed by doctrine, by the truth. Why is it that in today's church we can be believers, supposedly, for 10, 15 years and we still can't present Christ in a way that helps us get out of a wet paper bag? Why is that? And this text that Luke gives us in 42 to 47 is to challenge us with that very thing. I mean, we're so bad today, the church in America, general, I'm being general, of course, I'm painting with a broad brush, but it's so bad today that there is the vast majority of people who claim to be believers in the vast majority of churches who, if I'm going to use the illustration, don't evangelize. You know what they say every time? You know what they say? I don't know what to say. I don't know how. What? what? If we could teleport all those people who say that way or think that way or live that way back to the early church, how do you think the early church would look at that? In Acts 2. Probably, what do you they probably think they were unbelievers. You think? I'll bet you're right, Tim. I'll bet they'd say, we got some people in our midst that are unbelievers. They need to know the gospel. Because these people have been, and here's the key, these people in Acts 2.42 had been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them. The Holy Spirit was moving, and you know what he did? He did what he's promised to do. He promised to change their hearts. And along with their changing their hearts is going to be their desires. And when he changes their desires, you know what they're going to want? They're going to want doctrine. <clears throat> they're going to want to know the truth. And they're going to find that they are impelled by the Spirit to learn and taste and see that he's good. And to learn of him. And to discover all that he has revealed. That's what that's what that's what's happening here. And so, if I may just say this before I get off of the first line, right off the bat, it's, this should challenge us, every one of us, to, not to say I better get busy and start to work harder. That's where we're in the error. I got to work harder and read more and study more. I got to buy some more commentaries, maybe a couple of systematic theology books. And I got to do this, I got to do that. Maybe I got to listen to a little more Christian radio. That's probably a mistake, but that's a whole other issue. Um, you get my point. That's where we want to go. And it, that's not the answer. The answer is to say, why Why not? Why, why am I not enthralled with this? And this should concern us if that's us, because... If the Spirit is who He says He is, He says this is what He does. And if I find that I'd much rather watch TV than learn about Jesus, if I'd much rather keep track of my teams than keep track of what God says about Himself, if I'd much rather know the stats from the last football game than know all there is to know about salvation, if my desires are elsewhere, even to the point of, I'd rather know more intimately my job and how to accomplish my task at work than Jesus, that's, that should scare us. That really should. doesn't mean we shouldn't be good at our job. 
We should be good at our job. Whatever your hand finds to do what? Do it with all your might. <clears throat> but even if I take that passage, I could say this. You know what your hand finds to do more than anything else in the spirit's at work in you? To know Jesus. To know God. To know doctrine. Do it with all your might. Pursue it. But it should challenge us. Wait a second. If that's not me, what does that mean? What does that mean? Which should cause us then to what? To evaluate and then <clears throat> repent, right? <laughs> repent and turn to God. To return to Jesus. Repent and believe, right? And cry out to God to change my heart. Would that be appropriate? God, change my heart. But not. This is not a passive crying out. God, change my heart. I mean, it's like it's like it's like saying to the mechanic, "Oh, please fix my car," but never taking it to him. Right? The car never gets fixed. Repenting and believing is repenting from and to. From something and to something. Repenting from all these worldly things that we're in pursuit of and repentance to Christ and, and knowing Christ. The amazing thing is we pursue, if we seek Him, we find Him, we seek Him with all our might. That's what they're doing here. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We could chew on that a lot longer, but we're going to move on. And to fellowship, he says. That's an interesting <clears throat> statement. These early believers wanted two things. And it's interesting that, that, that Luke starts with these two. Because everything else is going to kind of, in some ways, build off of these two. But first, it's, it's doctrine. And second, they devote themselves to one doctrine, knowing and fellowshipping and living in, just drinking and being saturated in doctrine. Secondly, they devoted themselves to hanging out with, who do you think? Others who were saturated and being saturated in the doctrine, the apostle teaching. Which makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. I mean, at every level it does, doesn't it? If you, I mean, remove the scriptures and Bible and, and religion and Christianity away from a second, but if you're enthralled with A and someone's not, and they're enthralled with B, you tend to hang out with them? Not really. You're enthralled with this and they're enthralled with that. If you're enthralled with, with motorcycles and dirt biking and someone else is enthralled with horseback riding, you think you're going to hang out a lot? Probably not. Does that make sense? Probably not. You connect once in a while, right? But if that's what's most important to you, you're not going to hang out all the time. On the other hand, if you're enthralled with dirt biking, I'm choosing the illustration, if you're enthralled with dirt biking, you live to dirt bike, which none of us do here, but you get the idea, I don't think, but you're, you love dirt biking, you're enthralled with dirt biking, and you meet a guy who loves and is enthralled with dirt biking. You both like living life on the edge and, and just being crazy out there and living life like on the edge, on the ragged edge. You know what? It's going to happen. 
What's that? I, was gonna, I, I thought you said for a second you're gonna get killed, which may be true. But you're right. You're gonna develop a really. Fun. <laughs> That's what I'm expecting. Or you're killed. <laughs> but you're gonna develop a friendship, and real quickly that friendship's gonna be pretty tight, isn't it? Hey, let's hang out. Let's go here. Let's go there. Let's race here. Let's race there. Let's cruise these trails. I found some new trails over here. I found some other trails over here. Let's go. You know what happens? That makes sense. We know it's true. If one person, since we're in, in it's the beginning of football season and it's um, and, and we're in Philadelphia Eagles territory, if you're a Philadelphia, a rabid Philadelphia Eagles fan, and somebody else is a rabid Giants fan, a rabid Dallas Cowboy fan, that's not going to work, is it? You'll still get together occasionally. You may work side by side, but you're not going to say, hey, let's go hang out. And the only exception to that is if, if the Eagles are like headed to the Super Bowl, and Dallas is 0-14. Then maybe you'll hang out and you'll invite them over, right? Because you know what's probably going to happen. You want to laugh at them and mock them the whole time. Right? You get the idea. My point is that when people have interests the same in their primary interests, they're not secondary. They're not just primary interests, but they're essential interests to them. Or to put it a different way, they're identity interests. Get the point? They're identity interests. And when we both have the same identity interests, and they're primary and they're identity interests, you know what we want to do with each other? We want to hang out. Don't we? Does that make sense? And then hanging out, are we going to talk about all sorts of secondary things? Or are we going to talk about the identity things? What do you think? You're going to talk about the identity things, aren't you? And you're going to get all excited together about the identity things. That's what happens. That's exactly what's happening here. They're continually devoting themselves to the doctrine, and they're continually devoting themselves to hanging out fellowshipping idea hanging out long term over significant periods of time sacrificially that's the picture believe it or not it's the picture because a sacrificial will sacrifice what secondary things for primary things everything's a sacrifice isn't it I sacrifice all sorts of things because I hold other things more valuable I don't consider them sacrifice because I'd rather do these anyway. But what they're doing is they're being devoted to each other because each other has this common thing, this common thread, and it is the identity thing. The identity interest. And it's given by the Spirit. It's when they get together because they both have the same identity. They find themselves fellowshipping in the identity. Ministering to one another with regard to the identity they have. Which should cause us again to stop for a second and ask ourselves, what is the things that drive me to other, other people? And some of you may say something like, well, really, Steve, I don't, I don't really, outside of work, I really don't hang out with anybody. Oh, yeah, you do. You just hang out with virtual people. Whether it's on the computer, music, TV, movies, whatever it is, we have virtual people then, don't we? 
And sometimes those aren't even real people. Well, it's movies or TV, obviously they're not real people, they're actors. We don't know them, we just know their character that they're playing on the show. Nothing wrong with watching movies or TV. No, I'm not saying anything wrong with that. I'm just saying, if we say, I don't hang out with people, I don't fellowship with people. Yes, we do. We just fellowship with virtual people. We're still fellowshipping. And people say, well, I don't even do that. I don't watch TV. I just have my cat. Really? You find some sort of identity similarity with your cat? Nothing wrong with having a cat. Right, Linda? Nothing wrong with having a cat. Nothing wrong with having a dog. Unless it's your old dog. But that's a whole other issue. What was that dog's name? Oreo. Oreo. Was that the one that was all vicious? Yeah. Almost you had to bring hand. it up. Almost took my <laughs> hand off. <laughs> but there's something really wrong if I have identity, primary identity interest with that that pet, right? Something really wrong with that. <laughs> something really weird. <laughs> These people in the early church, descriptively, were hanging out with who? Other people of like, use the term they, like faith. But we better be careful how we define like faith. Right? This is primary stuff. It's doctrinal. It's focused on the truth. And they're enthralled with the truth of who, who God is. They're focused on, on the truth and they're enthralled with the truth of what he's accomplished and what he's going to accomplish, what he's promised and who he is and all the rest of that. And so they hang out with oh, those who also have primary interests, identity interests the same. Again, cause to cause and ask yourself what's going on. Real important. He goes on. Chapter 2. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And the prayers. So, verse 42 establishes the trajectory for the remaining verses in this description. They are also getting together uh, and devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, which probably means two different things. Yes, it does mean the Lord's table, which we are going to take today. They're continually devoting themselves to the Lord's table. It also probably means, and all the ramifications of what that means, to be devoting themselves to the Lord's table, it also probably means they're coming together and sharing meals. Because later on in 46, it talks about eating meals together. And in the early church, they were, they were eating meals, just like they saw it with Jesus. They, they had the last supper, we call it the last supper today, and then they had the communion at the end of it, celebrating Passover at the end, with the handing out of the bread and the cup. So most likely what he's referencing is both, they're breaking bread as an eating together, and they are celebrating the Lord's table together uh, on, on an ongoing basis. So this is a devoted thing. So they're eating together, something special about eating together, but they are, what are they doing while they're eating? You think they're fellowshipping in doctrine? They're fellowshipping in doctrine together. They're ministering to one another in doctrine as they break bread, and then at, as they as they break bread and and fellowship in doctrine, then they do what? They are devoting themselves to prayer. They're devoting themselves to prayer. Now again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is because of what the Spirit is doing in their life. The result is what? They find themselves wanting to talk about and miss one another the truth and then to pray. What do you think they're praying about? 
It doesn't say here. We can only surmise. We can only hypothesize. I suspect they're praying about what they've been talking about. Haven't they? Over to Dawson. What? Over to Dawson. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, it, it, what, what I would suspect they're praying about here is being referenced here. It makes, it's the only thing that really makes sense is they're praying about to God with regard to the doctrine they've been discussing that that doctrine would infiltrate further where? In their lives, personally, corporately, and then out into the lost and dying world around them, the community. Absolutely. That's what they're praying about. That's what they're praying about. They're praying that these doctrines, these truths, will have the effect on all of them and then have the effect on those outside of them as well. In an ongoing way. What a rich time of prayer those, those prayer times must have been. That must have been amazing. Praying prayers that are just, as the prayers are being made, the room is filling up again with God. <clears throat> that was happening? That was happening. As they're praying, the prayers themselves are just bringing loads and loads of doctrine, truth about God and what he's doing right into the meeting, right into the room. <laughs> Luke goes on, verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So verse 43, we'll camp on for just a little bit. There's some debate on, verse, on the opening of verse 43 when it says, And awe came upon every soul. Um, some people, it's pretty much divided. The awe, some people say, is the people of the church. Uh, other people say the awe is the community around. My view is, the text doesn't give us the opportunity to slice and dice that way. I think it's everybody. I think it's both. What's happening? Well, the church is coming together. The people are coming together, it says, and they are devoting themselves ongoingly, sacrificially, to, to learning and talking about the, the apostles' teachings. They're wrestling with them. They're skinning them out. They're developing them, helping themselves and each other understand and, and then they're going through all the rest of the things it said there in, in verse 42. And the result is they're being what? These people that are in the church are being what? Transformed. They're, it's trans, they, they, see, you got to remember, being a Christian, becoming a Christian is a be, being transformed at that moment. But it's being transformed past tense and being transformed present and future tense as well. So they are, they are people that are being transformed by the truth. And so the result is these people at church are what? They're in awe. What does that mean? What, is it, what does the King James use word? The beginning of verse 43. Fear. Fear. In other words, they, they, they fear and awe go hand in glove in the New Testament, oftentimes. The idea is they are absolutely enthralled with the truth. And it's dripping in awe or fear throughout the entire church. In fear and awe of God. And, and and specifically it's focused on, in this case, in verse 43, it's focused on all these signs and wonders the apostles are doing. Because the, the early church is being established here. The truth that, that Christ accomplished is being verified through, uh, through the signs and wonders that are just the continuations of signs and wonders that Jesus was doing early on. But there's awe in, in the midst of the church, the covenant community, there is an awe and fear of God. And it's being 
aided along in this case by the ongoing signs and wonders that the that the apostles are doing. Now, I would argue that the signs and wonders that are being referenced here ceased. I think the, text, the scriptures argue that. We still have them recorded here, and we uh, can see them. We can read them. <laughs> but all the signs and wonders did is verify that what Christ accomplished on the cross was real. The one sign and wonder that continues to this day, <clears throat> I would submit to you, that people are transformed from death to life. That is a sign and wonder, isn't it? It's an amazing sign and wonder that people are transformed from death to life. So it says that they were all in awe. It says in verse 43, and the awe and awe came upon every soul. I would present it was also to the unbelievers in the community. What did we start out with? If people are like this in that early church, the people in the community are going to know it, right? They're going to see it. They're going to realize it. It's going to be evident. You know what started to happen? Awe and fear was in the community as well. People saw it. They took note of it. And they wondered. And some of them were drawn. We're going to find in verse 47. By all this, they were drawn to, by the Spirit, to the church, right? To Christ. And then into the church. Others didn't. We'll find in Acts chapter... Um, Six, I think it is, or seven. Six or seven. No, end of five, I think it is. Actually, it's five. When Ananias and Sapphira are killed, it says the same thing again. But people kept their distance at that point because they started realizing there's a real consequence to being in the church. Real consequence. You join the church, you you, you come to faith in Christ, there's consequence. And when, you, when, when, when we err, we, we could die. But fear, again, was on the people. So you find that there was an effect. For those who were the church, there was an effect. There was awe. Again, not prescriptive. It was, it was descriptive. We're not required. It doesn't say, listen, you better start to have a sense of awe here. That's what it says. It says that's what happens. That's what happens. The point is, if there's no awe, no fear of the Lord in our lives, that should cause us to say, wait a second, what's going on? What's happening? That's the way it is. And then in our communities, where we live, I think it should cause us to question. Why is it that nobody in my community is in awe or fear of the Lord? Why is that? Why is it that nobody at my work, where I work, <clears throat> is in fear and awe of the Lord? Perhaps, I'm just throwing this out, perhaps it's because we're not. You see, if we're not in fear of awe, uh, and, and, and in awe of the Lord, what's going to happen? Nobody's going to be introduced. Does that sound familiar? If I'm not thoroughly saturated in doctrine, for example... Then what do you think is going to happen when I speak to my neighbor? We talk about lawnmowers. We talk about tools. We talk about running. We talk to them about our neighborhood. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about games, sports. We're going to talk about our job at work, and that's all we're going to talk about. 
And we're going to talk about all these other things. Why are we talking about all those other things? You know why? Because they're identity things. That's all we talk about. And that's why doctrine doesn't show up on our lips when we're talking about it to our neighbors. Because Christ isn't our identity, which calls a lot of things into question. I, again, it's descriptive, but I think this description is arguing and declaring that when Christ is my identity and doctrine about God is my identity, then what's going to happen is my neighbors are going to know that. They're going to know that. And as they know that, you know what's going to happen? On fear, maybe. Now, later on, we find out there's another addition to it. Later on, there starts to become some hatred. Right? Later on, hatred joins in. So you, you'll find awe and fear, which will draw some people close and push some people away. And ultimately, those who get pushed away become haters. Not just the Christ, but they start hating who? Yes, they start hating his followers. And that's what we don't want. Because our identity is out there. So he goes on. we verse 43 again. Uh, we're actually, we'll, we'll slide off of uh, 43 because we've already talked about the end of 43. 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. A couple things. Two things there in this description about the early church. It says, firstly, they had all things in common. Now, I, this has been misunderstood by a lot of people. When someone got saved in that early church, their desires, their longings, their hopes... Their dreams, their focus, their priorities, by the Spirit, changed. And I want you to notice, yes, it, it is changing, but it also changed. See, today, I'm going to jump all the way back to 42 again. This early church, like right away, this is, this is historical. It's laid out historically. Two comes before five. Not just in the book of Luke, or book of Acts, I mean, but it, it actually comes historically, chronologically. Two comes before five. Five. The end of two comes right after the beginning of two, the beginning and middle of two. So what we find out in Acts chapter two is there is an ongoing transformation, is there not? But we also find out there is an instantaneous transformation, is there not? Correct? Is there an instantaneous transformation? Very clearly there's an, a trans an instantaneous transformation. Is there an ongoing transformation? Well, the rest of the scriptures argue that it's ongoing as well. But well, we know it's instantaneous. In this text, we see it in Saul, don't we? He, he's blinded on the road to Damascus. And is there instantaneous transformation? A few days later, he's preaching Christ and him crucified in the, in the, in the, uh, in the tabernacle of the synagogue, isn't he? That sounds pretty, pretty quick. Transformation. The blind guy, when, he, when he's able to see, is that a, a pretty quick transformation? He starts preaching to the Pharisees right away, doesn't he? He knows almost nothing. You see that over and over and over again. We don't expect that today, do we? We don't demand it. We don't expect it. We don't look for it. In fact, we, we oftentimes in Christianity today kind of expect a transformation may not ever happen. Or it may be hard even to see ever. That's 
antithetical to the scriptures. What does it say? Verse 45, and uh, sorry, verse 44. And all who believed were together. They were instantly what? Transformed to the point that they just wanted to be what? Together. The idea is the ongoing way. If we didn't pick it up in 42 and 43 and 44, in an ongoing way, they're together, which refers to both a physical location, they're getting together, and there's a longing to get together, but there is it's also a supernatural thing, too, or a spiritual thing. They're together what? Spiritually. They're united physically and united spiritually. There's a longing to be with each other because there's... And, and so therefore, there's a longing because there's a longing because we both have the same spirit. There's a longing to be together, which results in an actual fellowship, belonging, together. And then in the midst of this togetherness of verse 43, and I'm sorry, verse 44, and all who believe were together, and then it goes on to and had all things in common. Now, here's where the confusion comes in, because this is where the socialism things come in as well, uh, too often. But I want you to notice, the idea here is not that everything became communal property or communal belongings. It's more focused on priorities, longings, desires. It, it was more the idea of my value system changed. My structure of value changed. My value used to be my stuff. My value now is... Christ and his church, right? And so therefore, with with my value being Christ is is my value and the church is my value, my my my, my uh, priority, it now becomes my stuff is available to you. Because my stuff is Christ's stuff. Everything changed. <laughs> So it went from, this is my chair, to you need a chair. It went from, this is my house, to you need a place to stay. It went from, this is my car, to, oh, you need a ride? Or do you need to use my car? Of course, they didn't have cars. Chair. Horse. Donkey. The point is, they had everything in common. The idea was, it's not, this is my property line, that's your property line anymore. It was, all things were common. Why? Because Christ was in them. And so they no longer viewed their stuff as their stuff. Or to put it a different way, they understood what Christ had. Remember in Philippians chapter 2? It says he didn't account equality with God the Father as something to be grasped or held on to. Right? But he humbled himself and became a servant. And he went all the way to the point of death. It's almost like you get the idea that they looked at their stuff and they said, 
Christ sacrificed so much for me. He gave up so much for me. He paid such a dear price. This is just me living that out. Sharing this, sharing that. Giving this away, giving that away as need was. And so from a functional standpoint, it was like all things were in common. All things were in common. And driven by the Spirit, we're sharing all things. And you get the idea that there was sacrifice going on. You had, you had, you had society levels, like you had rich people and poor people. But suddenly what began to happen was those with were helping those without. Not because they were told they had to, but because they, in fellowshipping and doctrine and learning about Christ, they were learning about his sacrifice and what he's done for that. And they just wanted to live that out in their little way. It changed everything. Changed everything. Verse 44. <clears throat> day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. A couple things here in verse in verse 46. You'll notice it says, day by day, attending the temple. They're going to the temple every day. It doesn't mean that every day there's 3,000 people walking into the temple at the same time. But the temple was definitely a gathering place. It doesn't mean that, like, we don't have a church building. It doesn't mean that we got to have a church building so we can do this. It's just that was their that was a typical gathering place, and they were going every day. And what do you think they were doing in the temple? <clears throat> Speaking, doctrine to each other, and fellowship with each other, ministering to one another. And to They're, others there. What? And to others And there. to the community who were lost and needed to hear about Jesus. Now, relatively quickly, that ends. Because, again, the persecution, they get dispersed. But it didn't mean they're fellowshipping together, ministering to one another, teaching and encouraging and exhorting one another in doctrine ended. No, just the going to the temple ended. Because they couldn't. They were gone, driven away from the temple. But notice in this point, it says, day by day, attending the temple, it's just a skinning out of this idea of fellowshipping and, and being together. They're gathered together day by day. And they're breaking bread in their homes. And again, I would argue that's probably both eating and Lord's table. It was it was a time frame where they probably weren't doing it in the temple so much as they were doing it. They were doing it in their own homes. They're having these services ongoing in their homes. And they're eating food at the same time. You'll notice attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So I want you to hear this as well. Because this is what, again, to more of the painting, the description that's being given. These people are described here as what? Did you hear it? Thankful and glad. You hear that? They have thankful hearts and glad. Can I just ask you a quick question? Does our world need to see Christians thankful and glad? But thankful and glad in what? Christ. In Christ. Thankful and glad in, in how Christ is providing for them in any way that he's providing and how much he loves them and cares for them. 
So even down to the basic element, elementary things of their life, eating and drinking, they are full of gladness and and having um, generous hearts. In verse 47, they're praising God. This is a characteristic thing. Again, do you think that's going to evidence itself out into the world? Everywhere they go, glad, generous, thankful. It's something that always bothers me. But in the last couple of years especially, and it's growing in my, in my troubled heart, in my, in my heart, in a troubled way, is how often I hear Christians being glad because of how things go their way. They're not so glad when things don't go their way. Thankful when things go their way. Not very thankful when things don't go their way. Isn't that something? You notice it as well? It troubles me. When I see it in my life, I see it troubles me. I see it in other people's life. Whether it's something small or something really major. Thankful when it goes our way. Grumbling and playing when it doesn't. It finally, it first started clicking with me. I will go all the way back to when President Obama got elected the first time. <coughs> it first started clicking when President Obama got elected. All sorts of Christians I knew were instantly, what do you think? Thankful? Grumbling? Complaining? Griping? People even come to me asking me if, if I thought he was the Antichrist. Grumbling, complaining, moping. Like, and I kept saying to people, wait a second, the Bible says that God's what? Sets up kings and, and tears down kings. This is obviously God's design for us. For what reason? I don't know. Maybe good, may not be good. It will be good for those who, who love God, right? Could have been my choice, maybe wasn't my choice. That's not the point. The point is ultimately, there's only one vote that counts, right? And it's God's. And yet I found Christians, when the opportunity to be joyful and thankful and let light shine out in the midst of darkness, they acted just like the world. That's what happened. Same way when, when, God, when, when seemingly God blessed us with a, a nice car. When the car gets taken away, sound like somebody familiar, by the way? Who does it sound like? Jonah. Jonah. That sounds like Jonah? I have help. Woo! I don't have help. Jonah. My wife loves me. Woo! My wife treats me like garbage. I'm choosing easy things and hard things. Isn't that just the way the world responds? Does that sound like transformation? Does it? Does it? <laughs> What's that? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but these people, life's not necessarily easy for them. The persecution hasn't started yet. It's going a little bit. There's rich people. There's poor people. It said right here, in the previous verse. All things are in common, helping those who are in. Need, which means they're going through some tough times. Poverty was very common in this day. There were some people who weren't struggling with poverty, but a lot of people were. 
A lot of people lived in what would be called subsistence living. But we can't understand today. And they're praising God for whatever food they have. Even if not much. They're what? They're receiving their food with gladness. They're generous hearts. Which means even if they don't have much, they're doing what? <clears throat> Praising God and having favor with all the people. Now again, that having favor with all the people, we got to understand that having favor with all the people does not mean, it's got to put in its context, does not mean that they're not bringing anything controversial to the table. Because they are. Because they're being driven by doctrine and doctrine's on their lips. It's controversial. But yet, at this point in time, they're finding favor with all people. I mean, that's including the world. Now, later on, they won't. And the reason why they won't later on is because they're following Christ. And ultimately, what's going to happen, and you know this is the case, if you preach Christ to a lost and dying world, and you live out Christ, and you, you're speaking it, you're speaking doctrine, at first, a lot of times it's like, that's okay, that's cool, you know, because we appreciate you, appreciate you and all the ethical things you're doing from a worldly perspective. They see it as ethical stuff, you know, and it's caring, and it's nice stuff. But in a little bit, that gospel is going to divide, right? Why does it divide? Because Christ divides. The gospel is Christ. And inevitably, people will come in contact with Christ will either love him or they're going to hate him. If they hate him, they're going to hate you. If they love him, they're going to love you. And so eventually, also, it's going, to, it's going to slice and cut. And it will separate. But at this point, what was happening? They were finding favor with all men. Well, of course they would. They're caring for people. They're loving people. They're ministering to people. They're helping people in need. Of course they're going to be loved by people. But ultimately, they're going to hate them because the gospel is accompanying all that. So verse 47, they're praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And what's the end result in this early church? What's happening? What does it say? It's growing. People are being saved. Okay? People, people are coming to faith in Christ. That's happening. I wonder, as we listen to this early church description, and we're going to see that skinned out the rest of the way, I just wonder if perhaps some of the reason why our church isn't growing is because we don't look a whole lot like Acts 2.42. I just wonder. I'm not, I'm not making a declaration. I'm not making... Making a, I'm not drawing an ultimate conclusion. I'm saying it causes all the things. To ask ourselves, where am I in Acts 2 42 to 47? Is the Spirit at work like this in my life? To ask ourselves, importantly, is this a description of our church? It's important to ask. Is this a description of our church? And then, and more importantly, is that a description of me? Or isn't it? And I wonder if, for Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, not 
uniquely to Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, but for Redeeming Grace Baptist Church and probably for just about every church in America. Perhaps we do need to repent, return, return. I want to remind you, as it says so clearly over and over and over again in the Old Testament, he says, if you return to me, I'll return to you. He says, he promises it. He promises it. That's what the gospel is all about. Yes, he's promised in the New Testament never to forsake us, right? Leave us nor forsake us. If we're truly believers. But we know, according to the New Testament epistles, that the church is prone to wander. Isn't it? Prone to wander. A prone probably too light of a term. When I read this, this text, when I study this text, and I, and I hear this description of the early church, I don't know about you, but I long for this. At the same time, I long for it. I'll be, I'll be straight up with you. I long for it in a very fearful way. I really do. I want this for our church. But I fear it as well because I hear in these words a really, really do you hear it? There's a really high cost in these few verses. Because what these verses are describing is people who are dying to self, aren't they? Or to use the John the Baptist term, what you hear on these pages, these are John the Baptist saying, I must what? Decrease. Decrease. And even that phrase by John the Baptist. That's too clear here. If I say to you, when I speak about myself, I, will, I long for this for our church, I long for this for me, but it terrifies me. It terrifies me. I find myself kind of racking a little bit of fear. Because the description that is found in this church is a description that leads to what I know is to be a very, very uncertain immediate future, doesn't it? If you know the New Testament story, the history, you know it leads to a, a very interesting but not comfortable future. Which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are what? Unseen. Because the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen. So yeah, it's scary. <laughs> but then I, I reminded that eternity is a long time. And this life we have is merely a snapshot in time that God has mercifully given us. First world. And so I would just ask you all to join with me in prayer. And as we pray and go from here after lunch, we go home, go wherever we're going to go. Um, but perhaps... We recognize and are honest about the fear of find ourselves crying out to God to draw us close and work in us so that we are transformed and ongoingly transformed so that we long for the doctrine and the fellowship and all the rest that comes along with it. Because I'm grafted in the vine and you're grafted in that exact same vine. Lord, help us to love the vine. And help us to love those who are grafted in because we're all the We're all the same, same uh, uh, shrub, so to speak.
So let's learn and taste and see if he's good, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, help us. The things we see are so loud. The things we see are so obvious. The things we see are so seemingly impossible to avoid. And yet the things that are unseen are the things that we want to see. Lord, I pray that you will help us. <clears throat> that we will by faith see the thing that is unseen. And by your spirit in seeing the thing that is unseen that we will be captivated by the unseen. Help us to love the unseen. Help us to long to know you. Change our hearts so that we crave you. Knowing you. And knowing you worshiping you. And worshiping you, ministering to others, encouraging others to worship. Change our priorities and our identity. We ask you to do what only you can do because we can't do this. Thank you for not making this perspective because this is the other So Lord, I pray you'll overwhelm us with your spirit at work so that we will be the thing you describe for your glory and grace. In your name I pray. Amen.